Welcome to After Hours with Dr. Sigaloff, where he can share ideas and thoughts with you. He gets to the heart of the issue so that you can find the truth. The views and opinions expressed are his and do not represent the U.S. Army, DOD, nor the U.S. government. Dr. Sigaloff was either off duty or on approved leave, and Dr. Sigaloff was not in uniform at the time of recording. Now, to Dr. Sigaloff. All right, well, thank you for joining me again. I want to first thank all my Patreon supporters. We've got Shell at the $50 level. Sam and Angela Shelke at the 2020 level, custom-made level, at the Plandemo, or Plandemic Reprimand, $15.76. We have Perry and Ty. We've got Kevin Alanos and Katie at the $10 level. We've got Joe, PJ, Rebecca, Emmy at $5. And at the $1 level, I want to thank Amanda, Spetsnadsdy, and Jay. Thank you so much for all your support. Don't forget, I'll be selling more of these patches, and those will be available too. But today we have a very special guest. And what's great about today's guest is he is a physician. He's actually in residency right now for neurosurgery, which is like among the the surgeons in in the medical field, those are guys are like they're like the the fighter pilots. They are the 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 cream of the crop type of of doctors. But he's also an advocate. He he thinks it's a good way to live is the best way to to put fuel in your body is to use what we call carnivore or also what man ate 10,000 years ago and we've forgotten that since. He's seen amazing healing with it just as I have and the reason I wanted to have him on today is you've heard me talk about it, you know, I can go on and on and on about it, but to hear a different perspective, someone else talk about it, I think it gives more credibility to this way of eating. So, how are you doing today, Dr. Jaffe? I'm doing great, thank you very much, thank you for having me on. And just call me Sam through this whole thing. But give us a little introduction of kind of your story a little bit and how you stumbled across the whole carnivore diet and and what led you to believe that is probably the most appropriate way for humans to eat. Sure. And, and please call me Anthony, of course. So, well, I'm, I'm an American doctor. I'm doing my residency in neurosurgery in Australia, as you mentioned. I have always been interested in diet and nutrition, how that affects the health and performance, especially as an athlete. I was an All-American rugby player and then played at the top levels in the U.S. and Canada, as well as at the professional level in England as well, and have always loved sports, always loved competition and wanted to fuel my body the best way that I could. And so obviously nutrition is the best way to do that. So I've been studying nutrition since I was a teenager at, at a university level. When I was in my undergraduate degree at the University of Washington in Seattle, I was taking cancer biology and we were learning basic fundamentals of biology and botany, which is that plants use defense chemicals in order to defend themselves. They're stationary. They can't run away or fight back and use the other sort of kinetic defenses that animals and other, other species have. And so they have to have other defenses. And one of those defenses that is ubiquitous amongst all plants are defense chemicals and poisons. And we were looking at this from a cancer point of view. So we're looking at carcinogens and we learned that this is 22 years ago that Brussels sprouts, they've already discovered 136 known human carcinogens just in Brussels sprouts and over a hundred just in mushrooms and spinach, kale, lettuce, celery, cabbage, cucumber, broccoli, all of these different plants that you would find every day in the produce aisle would have 60, 80, or over a hundred known human carcinogens each. And they were quite abundant. We have research out of UC Berkeley in the 1980s from Professor Bruce Ames, looking at the defense chemicals in comparison to the pesticides we use industrially, right? So, so these, these defense chemicals are actually the natural pesticides, the natural insecticides that the plants use to stop pests and insects from eating them. And then we add to that because there are some animals and insects that are immune to those defense chemicals, but they're not immune to other defense chemicals. And so we add something to the mix to make it cover different different species and he found that just the defense chemicals and carcinogens that he found in these these plants at that time which weren't as many as we've discovered since then were 10,000 times more prevalent by weight than the than the pesticides we sprayed on them industrially and that the naturally occurring ones were a thousand times more likely to cause cancer than the defense, then the pesticides we sprayed on them in, in animal models. And specifically they were, they were looking at ALAR in this instance, which was a pesticide that was sprayed on apples. And so this is why we still have pesticides. So you just said that the, the naturally made this, you know, organic, if you will, made by the plant toxins that it uses to, to protect itself are more carcinogenic than the stuff we spray on it. 
Yeah. And, and that's why we still have them because they were actually, they were actually trying to get all these pesticides banned back in the eighties actually did ban a number of the different pesticides that we used to use because they said, Oh, these are poisons. These are toxic. These are horrible. And it's true. But professor Ames showed that actually the natural defense chemicals in the plant itself are actually worse, which would make sense. There's standard reason because these, these things are alive. They like to stay alive and all living things have a defense. And so they have to have these, these naturally occurring pesticides and insecticides in them that are basically poisonous to everything on earth, except there are a few animals and insects that have evolved to break down these specific defense chemicals in, you know, down, break them down safely so that they can eat them. And, you know, they have that defense. So, so, you know, as, as you learn in, in basic biology, plants and animals are an evolutionary arms race, plants becoming more and more poisonous. So less and less animals can eat them so they can survive and thrive. And then animals becoming more and more adapted to specific poisons and specific plants so they can eat that plant and survive and thrive. And that is their dedicated food source, you know, like a wallaby in Australia, you know, people marvel is like, wow, these things that they eat are just so deadly poisonous to everything else. That's amazing. No, that's actually very normal. I mean, think of the eucalyptus and koalas or bamboo and pandas and, and, you know, other animals, some animals eat pan, bamboo as well, but all of these plants that they eat are generally going to be toxic or even deadly to basically every other animal on earth. So if you think about it, all plants are poisonous. It's just that certain animals have evolved the ability to break down specific poisons in specific plants. But if they haven't evolved to, to eat that plant, that plant is bad for them. And that, and that goes for us as well, because of course we live within nature, you know, and, and we can't, we can't deny our, our, our place in nature. We did not come here from space. We did not flash out of, out of nowhere. We are part of nature. We are animals and nature applies to us. And if we deny that it were, you're just doing that at our own risk because we, you know, reality will, will win so, every time. So Anthony, this is exactly what just caught my attention. I was listening to you on, I think you came up on my Instagram feed and you said a phrase that I've been saying for You've probably been saying it longer, but, and I never heard it before from any other doctor, but I said it for two years now, and it, it caused a lot of problems for me. But I said, plants want to kill you. They don't want you to eat them. They can't defend themselves. They don't want you eating their babies, and their babies are their seeds. I don't think you said that part, but their babies are like their seeds. And, and when I heard another doctor say that, I was like, just blown away that, wow, someone else came to the same exact conclusion. And so that leads me to the next question. Well, well Dr. Anthony, what else can I eat? What did humans eat 10,000 years ago? What's on every continent in every season that's available for food? Except for Antarctica, but that's, nobody lives there. Well, penguins, you know, eat some penguins. But, um, yeah, but you're right. I mean, that, that's exactly it, is that, you know, the, the universal underlying theme there is animals. You know, we, we were hunters. We were not hunter-gatherers. We were hunters. We were very recently hunter-gatherers gatherers after the megafauna died out through some sort of cataclysm or over hunting, probably a mixture of both. And at that point we had to sort of find other means of sustenance, but you know, even, even then, uh, you know, many civilizations still were exclusively eating meat. You know, when, when the Europeans came to America, they were essentially all of this, the native peoples were still just carnivores. They were, they were doing Buffalo drops. They were just, you know, having scaring a herd of uh, part of a herd of Buffalo over a cliff. They'd all fall down and die. And they would make pemmican out of that, dry the meat, crush it up and uh, mix it with rendered fat. And that would last the whole year. And that's all, all they were eating. And there was a hundred million people on the continent of North America surviving like this. And there were certain areas that developed agriculture, actually seven independent places across the world. So it seems to be that this provided some sort of advantage in certain areas where maybe the, you know, we didn't have big Buffalo herds and things like that, but there were plenty of, of peoples. I mean, think of, think of you know, slightly further back than that Genghis Khan and the Mongol horde. They were pure carnivores. They just ate horse meat, drank horse blood and fermented mare's milk and their products. And they're completely lactose intolerant, by the way, they didn't, they didn't actually just drink it on its own. They, and they, they had to ferment it and get rid of all the lactose. It was all always fermented like cheeses and yogurt and, and, and like a weird beer. I don't know how that's going to taste, but you know, it's like mare's milk 
booze and and that's what and that's what they ate and you know it's actually conferred huge advantage to advantages to them not not only in health these guys were huge i mean every account talks about this how they were just that monstrous in size these guys were pushing seven feet and it was massive 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 people and and they would talk about how they would like wouldn't eat for five days in a row and then they would eat five pounds of horse meat, 10 pounds of horse meat in a go. And then they'd go for another, another five or six days. And that was normal for them. And because of that, a, they were much better nourished. They were much stronger. They had much better energy and they didn't have to stop three times a day to get out the field rations, boil up some oats and, and feed all the troops and then keep marching. They could just keep going and they didn't have all these cook fires and campfires and everything like that. So they were silent. You couldn't, you couldn't see campfires and army, you know, Oh, there's an army. Oh, it's coming closer. Oh, we know where they are. You didn't know where they were. They just show up out of nowhere and they knew exactly where you were because they could see all your campfires. They could see you stopping three times a day and they could see your, your campfires at night. And so they had a massive advantage and they took over most of Asia and most of Europe and they had the largest contiguous empire that's ever existed. And they held it for hundreds of years until there was another cataclysm that seemed to, you know, get up a bunch of particulates in, into the atmosphere, block out the rays of the sun. A lot of the plant life and grasses died off and horses just aren't as capable of extracting nutrients out of grass as cows are. So the, so the peoples that were nomadic cow herders, they sort of took over and that's what Russia is now. They took over most of that previous empire. And, you know, but that, that just goes to show you that this is, this is a very, very viable model, even for a large empire. And actually it, it confers an advantage to that. We've sort of forgotten that, but you, there are a number of examples of that throughout history. Yeah. What I think is interesting is there's this idea in the medical field that the Mediterranean diet that has been, you know, allegedly proven to be so heart healthy, they've turned it into this, this plant you know, monstrosity where it's, oh, we're just eating plants. But if you look at the people in the Mediterranean, they ate goat, goat's milk, sheep. They had some fruit like olives and, you know, cucumbers and tomatoes, but it was, and cheese and yogurt, but it was a animal based diet with fruit. And can you get into the, the difference between, cause sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, read the Iliad and the Odyssey. I mean, it's all about, you know, the animals that they're herding and, you know, sacrificing goats and sheep and things like that. You know, Odysseus gets back home, kicks out all his suitors who are just every day. They're just, you know, decimating his herds. And, and, and they're like, and he's telling his wife, he's like, don't worry, we kicked all these guys out. We'll get all that money back. We'll just you know, go, go start raiding their towns and villages. And we'll just take it all back and things like that. It was all about meat. It was all about animal produce. Yeah. And I don't know if you have any sort of a religious background, but in the Bible too, it's, it's about herding. You know, he was a wealthy, like Abraham was a wealthy man because he had huge herds and yeah it's just it's when you start looking back you're like oh everything points to eating meat well yeah you know to, to your point there i mean look at the story of cain and abel basically almost as far back as you can go i mean hey we're not in the garden of eden anymore that's when people think it's like oh we can eat all these plants no we're, we're not in the garden of eden that's the whole point now and so we we are you know subject to different rules and Cain and Abel, Abel was a herder and he sacrificed, you know, the fatted lamb to, to God. God was pleased. And then Cain was, was a farmer, put up some crops on there, some, you know, tofu and, and bean curd. And God was like, absolutely not. That's disgusting. And then God was displeased. And so, you know, and then, then Cain got, you know, very, you know, jealous and butthurt about that. And so he ended up killing his brother, Abel, which I think is the first, you know, first example of an angry vegan, you know, just like, I'm not, I'm not happy with you meat eaters. And uh, so, but yeah, I mean, there, there are plenty of examples of all of this. I, I watched this, this cartoon on YouTube with my kids. It's called Storybook. And some of the older cart versions of it, they have, they have that Cain and Abel story. And it's, it's so like right in your face. They, and they did a very, very good job of it. You know, Abel is this herder. He's eating sheep and, and eggs and all this, that, and the other. And, and we call it strong food for my kids. And we have weak food. Weak food is, you know, any vegetable and all processed foods. Fruit's kind of in the middle. doesn't really matter so much. And, and what's just striking, I ask the kids, what is, what's Cain eating? Weak food. You know, he's eating grains. He's eating, like, kale. He's eating spinach. And, he's eating all, and he, his brother brings him eggs. And, you know, this is, they've taken some literary license with this, right? And his brother brings him some eggs. And he smashes them on the ground. And it's just like, Wow. He didn't eat any strong food. I don't know if you remember in April of 2020, there was an article that came out that said that those that eat meat have less behavioral health issues than those that eat no meat. Well, what's a murderous rage? That's, that's 
a behavioral health issue. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I was just thinking of what you were saying that that's interesting that you have that, that, that same conclusion that plants are trying to kill you. I, I originally heard that from my cancer biology professor, because that's what he said, 22, that's what converted me 22 years ago to exclusively eating meat was that he said, we're basically telling us about all these carcinogens and toxins that are in, in vegetables. And literally we were blown away. And I, we, I remember I was thrashed looking around wildly to see who was in on the joke because it must be a joke and everyone else was doing it too. Everyone was just looking around, just, just violently, like what's going on. Just looking for like a TA, someone in the corner, just laughing like, ah, he just always, always does this. No one did that. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, yeah, yeah we're all, yeah, on candy camera or something like that. And like, you know, it, it didn't happen. And so it just sort of dawned on me like, okay, this guy's serious. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, but, but vegetables are still good for you though. Right. And he just sort of looked at us and he just read our minds and he just said, I don't eat salad. I don't eat vegetables. I don't let my kids eat vegetables. Plants are trying to kill you. So I was like, right, forget plants. And I just stopped that day. And I just, you know, went to the stores looking around and my only mission was to n not eat plants. And I was looking like, what else is there? Is everything's plants or it has plants in it as ingredients. And so I just came across, you know, eggs and meat and milk. And I was like, oh, okay, these don't come from plants. So that's, that's all I'll eat. I, I was still drinking milk at that time. I don't really anymore just because it has not enough lactose that it you know, can raise your insulin and derange your metabolism. But uh, at the time I was, I wasn't actually drinking all that much that often. It was mostly just meat and water, but yeah. And, but that was my only, my only thought was like, I don't want to eat plants. Plants are trying to kill me. And I just got rid of them. When I was in England, I was playing rugby over there. It was just harder to get, you know, meat and it was much more expensive. A lot of it was breaded and just for convenience, I would get some of like the breaded meat and just because it was easier and I don't know what it was, but like, it was very hard to cook a steak over there. I don't know if I, I can, <laughs> this pisses off everybody in England. Every time I say our meat's such good quality, I'm like, okay, maybe, but the ones I was getting was like injected with water or something because like I could not get these things to brown at all. It didn't matter what heat I used or how long I cooked it. It was like, they would not brown. And so I'm like cooking it. It's just like just being gray. I'm like, what, the, what is going on here? I flipped it over. It's just gray and sweaty and it would be completely cooked through. It'd be completely well done. It would not be brown on either side. I was like, I, what is going on with these steaks? Couldn't get these things <laughs> to brown. And so, you know, I just, you know, for convenience sort of went for these pre-cooked things that were breaded. And I was thinking, I was like, well, is that, is that going to be a problem? I was like, well, you know, dose makes the poison. So, you know, maybe it's not all that bad. And, you know, you're always able to convince yourself of some stupid idea that you want to do. And, and so I did that and I actually didn't feel as good. I remember a couple of months into it feeling like, why don't, why don't I feel as, you know, it's absolutely just superhuman, amazing as I normally do. Am I not just not working out as hard? Am I 25 now? So am I over the hump and am I just dying now? Like, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't know what was going on, but it was, you know, looking back, it was, that was exactly when I started introducing plants back in. And the worst thing that that did was it, it changed from me really thinking I'm not eating plants at all ever to, I guess they're not, I guess some of these things. And, and all of a sudden I just started eating these things. I remember one day I was just like, I was with the, the team and I was, it was like a Sunday or something like that. And we're all just hanging out and I was like, oh, we should make like French toast. I haven't had French toast in years. And I was thinking, I was like, Hmm, I wonder why I haven't done that. Just completely forgetting that I've not eaten plants in five years. You know, <laughs> it was just, it was so weird. It was just like, it was so weird. I just, you know, it just, it, it, it just sort of slipped away and I just sort of lost that thought. And then sort of like five, six years ago, I came across, you know, again, information that no humans actually are carnivores as a species. That's biologically what we are. We are animals and the type of animal we are is a carnivore. All animals have a species specific diet, very specific things in the wild. This is why there are signs at the zoo saying, do not feed the animals. This will make them very sick signs at the park saying the same thing. And that is why, because if you eat something that you're not designed to eat, you will get sick because of these defense chemicals. And because you can't process the fiber and the carbohydrates, unless you're a certain species and we are not that species. And so I looked at that and I went, right. I knew it. I knew plants were trying to kill me, get rid of these stupid things. And I just went back to just eating meat, but now I was doing it in a much more mindful way. I knew exactly what I was doing and why. And then I really started digging into the research and the data and asking, okay, what do we know? And, and what can we prove? You know? And, uh, and I just started digging in. I just, I was, you know, I, I taken, well, I basically left my residency at the time to go help with a family emergency. You know, my, my parents were having health issues and I just needed to be home for a while. And so I was helping out with that. 
And, and so I had, I had a bit more time. And so I, I was literally spending just eight, nine hours a day. I was back like, you know, doing my you know boards and MCATs again, you know, just, just like in front of a computer, just, just, just reading and reading and reading. But now it was just trying to research, say, asking questions like, okay, you know, like with sugar, you know, and, and, you know, has that been called, you know, I knew sugar, I knew the research about sugar and fructose and that causing harm. I knew the research that, you know, cholesterol and saturated fat actually weren't bad ever. And, you know, so I had all these things and the plants are trying to kill you sort of things. That's a mind blowing thing that cholesterol is good. Saturated fat is good. Our body's made of it. That's it. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's. Yeah, well, that's it. You know, I was in eighth grade and was taking, you know, biology in eighth grade. And I remember learning, it's like the, the cell membranes are cholesterol. And I was just like, and I was I remember thinking to myself, I was like, how is cholesterol bad for us? We are cholesterol. I was like, well, you know, I'm just a kid. I don't really know every, everything. So, you know, I guess I'll learn this eventually. And I just sort of tucked that thought away. But you know, I was right. I mean, that, that's why you know, they, they talk about, you know, like wisdom from the mouth of babes, because, you know, kids haven't been indoctrinated yet and they can actually just see what's in front of them. And it's pretty damn clear. Like we are made out of cholesterol. Our hormones are all made out of cholesterol. Our brain is made out of cholesterol. There are a lot of things that run on cholesterol. Why would it just all of a sudden be bad for us? Or, you know, the carrier protein, you know, more specifically that, that transports fat and cholesterol around. Why, why is that bad for us? That that's the, that's a natural process in our body. And just, just for some reason, it just, yeah, exactly. And, and so this, this is where we vilify LDL cholesterol. First of all, there are many different kinds of LDL cholesterol. They're not all the same. And, and, but again, this is, this is a natural, normal molecule that we make in health to transport lipids and, and cholesterol. Why would that be bad for us? That doesn't make any damn sense. It just shocked me when I was in biology, biology 1301. And they said, you know, if you go on an extremely low caloric intake, your LDL and your just skyrockets immediately. I was like, that is a strange thing. Why would my LDL skyrocket if it's, why would my body make something to kill me if it's as bad as they say it is when I'm fasting? And then, you know. 20 years later, I find out, oh, no, it's part of the immune system. It helps scrounge up all that stuff. It's a way to move energy around my body to where cancer and bacteria and viruses can't use it. It's like, oh, now that makes so much more sense why that happens when I fast. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and, and the fact that there, there are many, many, many different kinds of particulate sizes and different kinds of LDL. And, and it matters what kind those are. And it's not that those inherently are, are bad for you. They, they're causing harm. They're, in, they're, they're sort of the smoke as opposed to the fire. You know, it, they come about from damage, from damaging yourself from glycation. And so when you have carbohydrates, you have excess glucose or even fructose, this can glycate, which is a non-enzymatic fusion of these, these sugar molecules to other molecules. So this is, this is a pathological function. Like this is not something that we, we do ourselves or that we want to do. So this happens, just sticks to different molecules and messes them up and damages them. And that's what happens to these other LDL molecules. And it, and it puts them into, you know, makes them into small, dense lipoproteins. And, and those are, have a stronger association with heart disease, but there's, there's, there's still no evidence that they cause heart disease. So what I think is that this is what a lot of people say, it's not just me, is that this is in a larger inflammatory process. And this is a product of that inflammatory process is this damage to this LDL cholesterol. That's also damaging a lot of other things. That's also causing a lot of inflammation and damage to the rest of your body that is then precipitates atherosclerosis. So the reason that there's an association is because both things are being caused by the same process. And that is much more likely to be the case. And certainly it's not a direct one-to-one -one LDL cholesterol to heart disease. We know that. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a no brainer. I mean, even, even people that still, you know, espouse the cholesterol theory of heart disease still have to admit that because there are massive studies. There was a, a two different studies in the U S where over 140,000 participants in the U S who had a heart attack and 50% had high cholesterol, 50% had low cholesterol, literally straight down the, down the line, 50, 50. And so it wasn't even like, well, it was like a 2% increase. No, no, it wasn't, it wasn't anything. It was, it was completely not associated. And you know, even if you have an association, even if it's a strong association, you can't prove causation, but if you have no association and you have pretty strong 
reason to say there's no association, like 140,000 people where there is absolutely no association, well, that actually proves that there's no causation because you have to have an association if you're going to cause something, right? And what's more interesting is that those patients were followed up two years later and the ones that either maintained a low cholesterol or reduced their cholesterol from high to low were two times as likely to have died in, in the intervening two years of follow-up. And the people that, that continue to have higher cholesterol, they were half as likely to die. So, you know, we know that it's not just one-to-one -one. cholesterol goes up, heart disease comes out. We know that. Okay. But at the same time, people are still saying, oh my God, you, your cholesterol, your cholesterol. Well, if we, we, if we know it's not causative, if we know there's not a direct relationship between just your number of cholesterol and heart disease, then what are you saying is the mechanism here? I mean, that no one, no one really answers that. They just say, right. here's a statin. And that was going to be my next question for you is, well, here, here, patient, here's a statin. And, and let's, let's kind of noodle through this a little bit. But if we're, if our brain is the fattiest organ in our body and we're altering how our body metabolizes fat, cholesterol, wouldn't it make perfect sense that we would have problems with cognition? Wouldn't it make perfect sense that we have, if LDL is part of the immune system, that we have problems with infection, which is one of the side effects? It all just falls into place. These aren't weird side effects. These are make perfect sense. Well, but that's it. And, and you know, as uh, you know, someone said to me before, there are no side effects. There are just effects. Some of them you want, some of them you don't. But that this, this is what this drug does. And what that drug does is it reduces a molecule in your body that is actually very important and has a lot of functionality and, and, and effects in your body that, that you don't actually want to get rid of. And so people can have a lot of side effects and they say they, they mitigate that because they say, well, you know, you're getting these problems, but oh, at least you won't get a heart attack or you'd be less likely to get a heart attack. And that's actually not true. You know, the studies are actually showing that there was a study with over 60,000 people over the age of 65, which are the you know, highest risk group of getting heart attacks. And they found that they, the ones with higher LDL cholesterol were either, you know, had, had no, you know, increased risk or sometimes actually a decreased risk if they had higher LDL cholesterol and were not on statins. And then the ones with statins had a slightly increased risk. And the ones that had low LDL cholesterol and on statins, they were at the, at the highest risk. So that's, that's doing the exact opposite of what this is proposing to do. And so the conclusion of this, the, the authors were saying, hey, look, we really need to rethink the role of statins and the role of cholesterol in heart disease because at, at, the, at the best that we can say with this data set is that statins don't provide any benefit. And, and the worst we can say is that they're actually causing harm. And that would make sense if you understand if you understand that cholesterol is not a direct cause of heart disease. And so, and it is actually a molecule that's really good for you. And so you don't actually want to reduce it. If you reduce it, that's going to cause harm and it's not going to save you from heart disease. When you start thinking of, of these studies, like you're showing where it's, it's not helpful and it may be quite harmful. It's like, well, then what's, why is the push for this? Why do all insurance companies push this? And, and I certainly don't want you saying anything because again, for the listener, he's in a different country. We, we don't want to have him say things that would cause problems for him. Let's put it that way. And we'll leave it at that because there are other things that he can't talk about that may cause problems. And we're not broaching those subjects at all today, but who who stand who stands to benefit, right? If insurance, let's like say in America, if insurance, if I don't get good scores from my insurance company, if I accept insurance because you know all my patients aren't on statins, well, I can't open their mouth and jam a pill down their throat. So what's what's the point? Like, what? Why are they pushing these so hard? I don't have an answer. I don't know if you do. Oh, the statins. Well, I mean, you know, statins have been the most successful drug that's ever been brought to market. It's brought the most profit and the most, you know, just gross income of any group of medications ever in history. And if they keep, you know, rolling this, you know, down this path, it's, it's going to just continue to, to give more and more and more and more back. Because if we're, if we're still, you know, telling ourselves that cholesterol is the end all be all, you know, anyone getting into their thirties, like, oh my goodness, you no, know, you've got, you've got some high cholesterol, better get on this statin before the, the, the atherosclerosis builds up or even gets a chance to, you know, they're going to have, you know, billions of people for the rest of eternity on this drug that they can just keep 
you know, you know, minting, you know, fortunes off of, but you know, so that that's their incentive, but you know, and if, and if it were actually helping people, I, w- I wouldn't mind that. But I think the evidence is, is quite clear that, that, that we got that one wrong. And, you know, I mean, the, the journal of the American college of cardiology themselves actually published in 2020, a large meta-analysis looking at all the available data and concluded that, you know what? Saturated fat is not a problem. Saturated fat is not a, a risk for heart disease. There is no upper limit on the, on the safe amount of saturated fat that you can eat. And in fact, they found an inverse relationship between saturated fat intake and stroke risk. Okay. So they found no association, no association. Remember, if there's no association, there is no causation. So they found no association throughout all of the literature between saturated fat intake and heart disease. And they found an inverse relationship between saturated fat intake and stroke. So the less saturated fat you eat, the more likely you are to have a stroke. The more saturated fat intake you have, the less likely you are to have a stroke. And there's studies looking at Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, as you would expect, your brain is made out of, is made out of fat, saturated fat and cholesterol. And and that having higher saturated fat intake, higher LDL cholesterol, the so-called bad cholesterol is actually protective against all of these neurodegenerative processes. It's even in, in it's even protective against, it seems to be a protective link between saturated fat and LDL cholesterol and autism. In fact, pregnant women who have higher intake of saturated fat and higher LDL cholesterol during pregnancy have lower rates of children with autism, which is getting out of control now. I mean, the, the rates of autism are, are skyrocketing as with all these other chronic diseases that we are seeing and facing over the past 40 years, they've all increased dramatically. You know, I mean, the, we, we revolutionized the way we ate. We said that cholesterol was bad. Saturated fat is causes higher cholesterol. This all exists in meat. Stop eating meat, stop eating eggs, eat more fruits and vegetables. And people listened in America alone. We reduced our fat intake by 30% and cholesterol as well. Reduced red meat by 33%. You know, sort of switched over to chicken, lean chicken sort of things. And then increased fruits and vegetables by 30 and 40% respectively, and also grains and sugar as well. And what happened? The obesity rate tripled, heart disease tripled, stroke rate tripled, cancer rates tripled, type 2 diabetes, autoimmune disorders, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, even you know, neurodegenerative developmental delays such as autism, all increased exponentially. They almost didn't exist before then. Now they're the only things we treat. And they all increased at the exact same time. And they're still increasing. And we are still pushing more and more and more away from fat, away from meat, and into plants, into seed oils, going more vegan, going more fake meat. And so we're seeing exactly what you expect, if that theory is true, that we are going further away from our naturally evolved species-specific diet, our designed diet, our designed biological food source. And just like animals in the zoo, just like you know the ducks at a park, if you feed us something that we don't normally eat, we will get sick. And that is exactly what's happening. And so that sort of shows that relationship that we're eating the wrong thing. Again, you know, from a religious background, I, I look at this from a different light. Cause it seems like, oh, there's some conspiracy to do this. No, there's not. There, there's a thing called the unseen realm. And so, you know, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities of darkness and in this unseen realm. And so what that means in the Bible is that there are these beings, you can call them demonic beings if you want, but what they do is they want to destroy God, Satan. He wants to, he can't strike at God. There's nothing he can do to God, but he can destroy humanity and that gets to God. And so how does that work? Well, there's a whispering of the ear. Oh, eat this. This is better for you. When in reality, it's worse for your body. It's worse for the planet. And it, it leads you to a point where you're so vitamin deficient that you don't know you're having neuropsych issues like B12. B12 deficiency, where there's no plant that has B12 in it, it can look like schizophrenia. Yeah. And there's, there's even a book that came out from Harvard psychiatrist, Chris, Dr. Chris Palmer, who wrote a book called brain energy. And he's done, he's been doing research for years now, looking at how diet specifically ketogenic diet affects schizophrenia and other psychiatric issues. And he, and he's come up with this underlying unifying theory of psychiatric disorders that it is a metabolic mitochondrial disease, which we were finding that a lot of diseases like diabetes, like cancer, like a lot of different diseases that 
our so-called chronic diseases, they actually come from a dysfunction of the mitochondria because we're eating the wrong thing. And we're damaging our mitochondria, they aren't working as, as well, and they can't generate ATP properly, and they can't move around the cell. It's, it's quite interesting because, as he explains in the book, mitochondria actually move around on these little cytoskeleton sort of A-trains. And they'll, you have hundreds of these things, thousands of these things in your cells, over a thousand if you're healthy. And they'll go to a certain area and they'll make ATP right there, release that of that area, and that will spark something to happen in that area. Neurotransmitters to be released from that area right there. And, and then they'll go to another area. And so this is all carefully coordinated. When that breaks down, that can't happen as quickly. That can't happen as efficiently. They're not getting the ATP out in the in the abundance and timing that they need to and that will just cause everything to go wrong i mean you have anywhere from a few hundred you know, a few hundred billion cells to several trillion cells in neurons in your brain and and they have you know 20 to 30,000 different interconnections with other cells and so you know even even just a little bit going wrong with with that extremely intricate dynamic in hundreds of billions of cells, you have a major problem. You know, this is, this is the most finely tuned precision instrument that we know of in the universe. And it can go very, very wrong. And, you know, that's, that's why I tell people that, you know, like the last 5% of going to a, you know, a carnivore diet, a biologically appropriate diet confers about 95% of the benefit because even just a little bit of sand in the gears in a precision watch, you're, it's done. You know, you don't need to dump the whole, you know, sand lot in there. It's just like a little bit will do it. And so because you, you've tinkered with this precision instrument, it's going to go wrong. And he found that people that went on a, a ketogenic diet, they were actually curing schizophrenia, bipolar, OCD, major depression, anxiety in, in far greater numbers than any of the standard of care, you know, you near complete recovery in most people. There was a, a study done by Georgia Ede with 32 psychiatric patients that were inpatients. They were refractory to standard of care medications. They, they failed and they were just, they couldn't function in society. So they were all institutionalized. They were all put on a ketogenic diet every single one improved, you know, none of them improved on the standard of care. Every single one improved on, on a ketogenic diet. That's 32 patients. But Chris Palmer has, has done this with hundreds and hundreds, you know, and, and the guys at, at Harvard and Harvard does, does a lot of good research, you know, and they do a lot of bad research too. They're very, very plant-based, which is interesting because he's in, he's in Harvard and this is where a lot of this, you know, just plants are good nonsense are coming out and because it's coming from Harvard, that's like, oh, it's Harvard. Of course, you know, it's, it's so great. And it's like, and, but thankfully people like Dr. Palmer and others are actually coming out with real research showing actual improvement in people's lives. And it goes against that. So they, they, I'm sure they're fighting an uphill battle in their own institutions. What first turned me on to carnivore was I, I stumbled across Michaela Peterson. Well, it was Mc Jordan Peterson talking about Michaela and her, she had idiopathic hypersomnolence is what he said. And which is interesting because I would just diagnose with that, huh? Interesting. And which is a super rare, it's like narcolepsy, but even more rare. And the difference is you go into REM versus not going into REM. And I was in Alaska at the time and you know, being a doctor, being on call, having narcolepsy your entire life, but now you're in Alaska. So you're, you're standing in quicksand. It's like always being a jet lag. You have two minutes and 30 seconds of daylight change every single day. So it's either all day, all night, or you're always somewhere in between. And none of the medications were working. And so I started doing carnivore. I just switched one month. And I could stay awake. I could read to my kids at night and not be falling asleep with a book in my hand. And it was just, it was just shocking. And now, if I have carbs, I get tired. It's, it's striking how quickly I can get tired from, from just a little bit of carbs. Like even fruit, you know, it's, I, I really have to stay away from carbs so that I don't, and it's not like Deuce Bigelow where you just fall asleep in your soup. It's not, it's not like that. It's, but just that feels like you've been up for 48 hours. It just kind of overwhelms you. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about it biochemically, you know, when you're in, you know, you know, I'm, I'm sure you took biochemistry is, you know, it's required for pre-med in America. And yet a lot of doctors in America seem to miss this simple fact that when you're in a so-called fasting state, 
your body works way better and you, you produce carbohydrates, you produce glucose and glycogen and ketones. And that's much more efficient to actually store energy and fat and then use it later as you need to. And as opposed to just keep feeding the beast, you know, a whole bunch of carbohydrates and just this quick burning fuel that you have to keep, keep going with. That doesn't really make sense. And, and so I don't think that that is a fasting state. It also doesn't make sense as a fasting state because I can eat three pounds of ribeye and still be in a fasting metabolism. That that's clearly not a fasting metabolism. That is just a metabolic state that we are primarily in when we're eating our primary food source, which is meat. And that the so-called fed state is a pathological state defense mechanism that our body's defending ourselves against hyperglycemia, which is dangerous because of this glycation that I mentioned earlier, the higher your blood sugar, the higher the rate of, of glycation. And this damages you, this, this can kill you. This is what kills diabetics and your body recognizes this and, and puts up your insulin as a defense and tries to get this out as quickly as possible. But it's not, it's not what well, we're just going to titrate this down slowly. It says, no, 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 we need to get this out now. And so it really slammed up your insulin quite high and it has a, a long half-life. And so it stays up and your blood sugar is now too low and you feel wretched, you know, and then you have to keep eating carbs to keep feeding that engine because insulin blocks lipolysis. It blocks proteolysis. So now all of your fat stores are shut down. You cannot mobilize energy anymore. You cannot make glucose, glycogen, ketones. You can only run on the, on the blood sugar that is now coming down precipitously. And so you have to keep eating carbs and keep eating carbs and keep eating carbs. And I don't, so I don't think that that's our primary metabolic state. In fact, that is not the primary metabolic state of humans in the wild who just eat meat like the Inuit and, or like other animals in the wild. 66% of animals, animal species are carnivores. They're all in this ketogenic starvation state as they call it. And, but also herbivores, herbivores that eat fibrous plants, they are able to break down fiber. We're not able to break down fiber. That's another reason that, you know, we're not supposed to be eating this stuff is because we can't do anything with it useful. So animals that are herbivores that eat fibrous plants, they can all break down fiber, but they break it down into short chain fatty acids because it's the bacteria that eat the fiber. No vertebrate animal can break down fiber. So the bacteria break it down. And as a waste product, they produce short chain fatty acids and then the bacteria die off. And that's also broken down and absorbed as protein. So what the animal is actually eating or is, is different from what it's absorbing. So it eats a bunch of fiber and it absorbs fat and protein. So even a cow or a, or a, or a gorilla is just eating green leaves and occasional fruit. They actually eat more green leaves than fruit. They're actually in this, they're actually getting 70 to 80% of their calories from fat. And so they're all in a ketogenic starvation state. And we've actually tested this in wolves in 1981. There was a study. They said, well, you know, you need carbs to burn carbs. That was the thought of the day. And so, you know, but we don't see wolves, you know, carbo loading before they chase caribou for 10 hours. So like, okay, do they have blood sugar? Do they have glycogen? And so they found out, yes, they do. And it's rock solid. It does not change no matter what they're doing, no matter what point that they, they found them, whether at rest, when they're in the chase, after the kill, after they've eaten, it didn't matter. It was right here because their body was constantly replenishing it from their fat stores. That is a much more efficient way of doing things than having to run, 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 run. Oh, okay. I need, I need to eat a power bar and then I can keep chasing this guy. Okay. All right. Now I can go. That, that doesn't work. You know, that does just doesn't work in the wild. And so I think the only reason that we call that fed state and this a fasting state is because by the time we were able to look at biochemistry at a molecular level, everyone was eating carbohydrates. And so I said, Oh, when you eat, it looks like this. When you don't eat, it looks like that. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. When you eat anything except carbohydrates, it also looks like this. And you're not fasting. You have just eaten thousands of calories. So you're not fasting. Okay. So that's just your normal. I want to take you back to state. something about the cancer. Cause, and, and I caught some of your Instagram live feed yesterday and you know, I, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask you anyway, just cause I want to make sure everyone else knows the answer to this. You were talking about cancer and how as a common pathway and you, you alluded to this, but so are you saying that all cancers a metabolic issue that could probably be refined down to mitochondria. That, that seems to be, you know, what the, what the biology certainly suggests, <coughs> excuse me, 
so you know that, that that's not me saying that you know like there's some of the top <coughs> excuse me some of the top cancer researchers in the world going back 100 years th these are their conclusions and so if you look at cancer biology look at the work of you know nobel prize winner otto warburg he wrote a paper in 1951 <clears throat> called the origin of cancer and he talks about how this this comes from the mitochondria this comes from damage to its ability to go through oxidative phosphorylation and when it does that it has to go through a substrate level fermentation process a lot of you know big words for a lot of people that they've never heard these things before what that means is the mitochondria are damaged and they're not able to create atp properly and so they have to go through other to other means of energy production because that cell needs is needs to make energy so the problem with this is that there are a lot of downstream effects of this it can create a lot of free radicals it's less efficient so you need a lot more glucose and it causes a lot of free radicals that can hit around bouncing around damaged cells that can cause dna damage and mutations it also upregulates and through epigenetics it starts changing the genetic expression to start opening up the channels and start hosing in more glucose because they're like, hey, we need more glucose. We're not getting enough ATP with this level of glucose and we can't run on ketones anymore because once those, uh, those mitochondria are damaged to a certain extent, they can't run on ketones. So they can only run on glucose and only in the level of the cytoplasm or they can also, some of them run on glutamine. And so they can run on that those sources, but they can't run efficiently. So they have to open up these channels and have to pull in a lot of glucose and glutamine. It could stop there, except for the fact that the mitochondria do a lot more than that. The mitochondria are actually what control apoptosis program cell death. So when things are going radically wrong and the cell just says, no, we just got to, we just got to ex exit right here and let the rest of the boys go on. That doesn't work if your mitochondria are, are damaged and destroyed. So they can't do that anymore. And then further, th further than that, it, the mitochondria are actually what regulate cell division. So they can't stop the cell from dividing at inappropriate times if they're damaged and they're not able to go about their normal business. So what is cancer? It's unregulated cell growth. And that's exactly what happens when you destroy the mitochondria. And so what we see in mitochondria that, or sorry, in the cancer cells throughout every single cancer cell as there are these damaged mitochondria, there's something different about them. There's more of them, there's less of them, and they're, they're physically structurally different. And, you know, in, in cell biology structure, you know, begets function. And so if the structure is damaged, they will not have the same function. And so you will see these damaged mitochondria in every cancer cell. And you will also see that all these cancer cells, as Otto Warburg showed a hundred years ago, and people like Professor Seafried of Boston College, formerly at Yale, have showed subsequently that cancer cells roughly require 400 times the amount of glucose to operate than normal cells because they're not as efficient at it. So they need a lot more of it. And they, they go through, you know, this, this fermentative process, basically like anaerobic activity, you know, instead of getting a 36 ATP, you're just getting two. And so you need a lot more of this stuff and they're bio, you know, they're biologically more active as well. So, you know, they, they need more even because of that. And so, you know, so that, that gives you a good idea that this is from the level of the mitochondria, right? And another few things to consider, you know, the, the, the other idea is, is the somatic theory of cancer, which is that this all comes down to the DNA because that's what happened. Watson and Crick discovered DNA after, after Otto Warburg discovered all this about the mitochondria and cancer. And everyone just basically just went, forget what everybody ever said. It's all about the DNA because they figured this is it. This is the code for life. This is where everything comes from and forgetting, first of all, that mitochondria have DNA and second of all, that like, you know, other things can have structure and function and yeah, exactly. And so, and, and, you know, the mitochondria have actually implanted, you know, its own DNA into, you know, the nucleus and things like that, but there's, there's still, you know, many genes in mitochondria as well. And they have, they have, they have epigenetic effects on the nucleus as well. So it's much more complicated than that. And but that, that was what happened. So basically everything got overshadowed because we discovered DNA, like, oh, everything's DNA. Well, no, it's not, you know, that has a lot to do with a lot of things, but that's not the end all be all. And 
some things that you can look at that, that sort of disrupt the somatic theory of uh, cancer is that first of all, cancer cells don't all have the same genetics. They're not all monoclonal. That's actually what I was taught in, in medical school. And you know, it was like, you have this, you have this, this mutation, you get this mutation after mutation, after mutation, you get these eight different mutations that are a hallmark of metastatic cancer. And then it just starts growing out of control. And that makes this big tumor and that spreads throughout your body. But that's actually not true. You know, like you, you can take a, you can take a tumor and you can cut it up and look at it under a microscope and you will see every single cell actually visibly looks different and they all have different DNA as well. And so they all, but they all act as cancer. They all behave as cancer. They're all malignant cells. And so that's a bit off. And some cancers actually don't have any genetic changes, none. So what's that about? You know, and they, they come up with all these different weird theories like, well, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the micro environment around it, maybe that's encouraging that to act as cancer. Like, well, you can sort of try to fit in different theories, but what it isn't is a genetic change in that nucleus. Right. And so that, that's something right there. Another one that's very interesting is actually from direct test. They've taken, it's called like a, a mitochondrial DNA transfer studies. So they've taken the damaged nucleus, the damaged DNA out of cancer cell and put it into a normal cell with normal, normal cytoplasm and mitochondria. It does not behave as cancer. They can even clone frogs and rats out of it. Okay. Then you take the mitochondria, the damaged mitochondria, put that into a healthy cell with healthy, normal DNA. It either dies on the spot or it turns into cancer. You cannot clone anything out of it. It'll just, it'll just turn it, turn into a ball of cancer and die. And so, you know, that's, that's, you know, pretty significant. And if you take healthy mitochondria and you put that into a cancer cell, it suppresses the cancer. It stops behaving as cancer. Okay. Regardless of the, the DNA. That's better proof for origin of cancer than what we have for proof of origin of viruses. But yeah, I, I mean, but that's it's, really it's conclusive. pretty damn conclusive, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's quick. Yeah, that's QED as far as I'm concerned, you know, I was like, well, that, yeah, that's what that is, you know? And yeah, it is. And, and then, you know, theory is only as good as what it's able to predict. And so you say, okay, well, if this is the case and if this, the, and this is, if this is a, a you know, a metabolic issue, coming from the level of the mitochondria. Okay. How do you attack this? You are going to have different approaches, right? So if you attack the energy source and you put someone on like a ketogenic diet, you would, you would, you would, it would stand to reason if this were the case that if you suppressed your level of ketones or sorry, if you're of glucose and started running on ketones, that this would limit the amount of glucose available to the cell. And your cells would be fine. You'd be able to run well because you, your, your body can easily run on ketones because you have normal mitochondria, the rest of your cells. But since the cancer cell can't run on ketones, it's going to run out of energy. It's going to die off. And in fact, that's what we see in, in animal models as well as quite a lot of human trials as well. Some cancers run more on glutamine. So like GBM, brain cancers, glioblastoma, they, about 70% of their energy comes from glutamine and about 20% comes from, you know, the glucose, you know, from the substrate level and maybe about 5% they get from, you know, a bit of a, a bit of oxidative phosphorylation, but even just putting people on a ketogenic diet or even a carnivore diet, there have been a number of case studies that have survived far past what you would normally expect. So a glioblastoma, especially like IDH wild type, you know, there's all a bunch of different molecular sort of signals that we look on these, these cancer cells to tell us sort of what a prog what the prognosis is. Sometimes it changes the, the chemotherapy sort of approaches that we do, that we use with them. And so GBM with IDH wild type is really the most aggressive. So these have about a two to three month survival from time of diagnosis with no treatment with chemo and radiation you're, you're talking sort of eight, nine months. And if you're able to do surgery, surgical resection and get over a 95% resection, that can bump that up to 15 months to 18 months. Okay. So that, that's overall actually for GBM. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, but you, you do have to cut out parts of the brain because it's very invasive. It's not like a met, like a metastasis can go in and, and, and sort of form this ball and push the brain out. But, but GBM actually just grows into the healthy brain. So you actually have to take out healthy brain with it. You can't just shell this thing out like you can, can with a met, you know, met, you know, can be growing into invasive into the brain as well, but you know, GBM almost invariably is. And so you, you do have to cut out healthy brain, but there are a number of people that maybe they had something in eloquent part of their brain that were like, well, that's not safe to take that out. Or maybe they could take out a little bit, but they had to leave, you know, a lot of it there. And then they started, you know, taking chemo and radiation and were like, well, look, I've got, there was, there's a gentleman in England, Andrew Scarborough, who I actually had on my podcast. I haven't released the episode yet, but he is a 10 year survivor of GBM wild type. And he's had no chemo radiation. He had debulking, but he had a lot of it in the motor strip. And so they couldn't touch that. They only took out half of it. And so there's a significant portion of the cancer cells left there. And you know, he, he started chemo and radiation, but as soon as he got his moleculars back, that this was a wild, you know, this was wild type, which isn't really responsive to chemo radiation. He just said, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to waste my time with that. I'm going to look at different, different ways of doing this. So he sort of discovered that, that people were using keto and fasting to, to help fight cancer. And so he started doing that. He started working with people like professor Seafried and getting their ideas. And he's now basically, you know, essentially just doing strict carnivore. He was having a lot of seizures. He was on two different anti-epileptics. He was, he, his doctors would not wean him off of these things. So he actually self weaned himself off, which I do not recommend people to do. It's very dangerous, but for, he did this over two years, it's slowly, yeah, it's sort of slowly weaning himself off, which is yeah, very, very dangerous, but he was able to get through it. He's not having seizures and his subsequent MRI is showing no sign of disease. And he's actually subsequently earned an advanced degree, advanced college degree, and is now doing human trials on a ketogenic diet with cancer patients, with GBM patients at Charing Cross Hospital in London. So, you know, that, that's actually quite amazing. There are a number of case series. So they're actually, they're actually major institutions in the U.S. that actually already use a ketogenic diet. You know, Cedar sinai Medical Center, they actually use ketogenic, ketogenic metabolic therapies. That's what it's called, KMT for their cancer patients, including their GBM patients. And they published a case series with, I think 15 or 16 different GBM patients, well, GBM patients, as well as other primary brain lesions. And the ones that were able to stick to it all fared far better than the average. And, and in fact, many are still alive. And there are some that couldn't stick to it and they said, well, this is too restrictive. And so they came off of it. They all died within a year. It was actually, it's actually quite sad to look at that and say like, you know, was, was your life that bad eating this way as restrictive as it was that it was worth dying, you know, and, and maybe, you know, maybe they would have died anyway. You know, we, you don't know, but it, it is quite coincidental that that that's what happened in all these cases. And, you know, there, there are even, there are even randomized controlled trials, small numbers, about 20 patients, but it, they all showed benefit. And so I've actually been able to present all of this information at our neurosurgical grand rounds and, and just explain the metabolic theory of cancer and, and show this evidence and show all the different tons of different case studies, tons and tons and tons of case studies, but also case series and randomized controlled trials, but in smaller numbers. And so I presented this and said, Hey, we get anywhere from two to five GBMs a week, right? Why don't we do a larger trial? Why don't we really, you know, put this, this home? There's already this done being done in, in Charing Cross in, in London. There's another one being done in, in, I think Dunedin in, or was it? No, Hamilton in New Zealand. I was like, well, why don't we, why don't we do another one? Maybe even do a multi-center approach and have it get a lot more clout in the, in the academic realms, but with large numbers and just see, and just, and, and just put this, this question to bed, whether it does or it doesn't. I, I just think it's important to find out. Well, Dr. Chafee, thank you so much 
for coming on and just blowing my mind. I'm, I'm hopefully this has made the listener just rethink everything because it's just amazing. Where can people find you more? Well, well, my main my main thing is I my YouTube channel is just Anthony Chafee MD, and that's where I do you know upload all my videos and things like that, and I do that also on Rumble. If people are on Rumble as well, all, all the same things will go up on there. And then Instagram is where I sort of coordinate things. And that's just, again, Anthony Chafee, MD. And I'll post when I'm going to, when I'm posting different videos or doing like a live event or something like that. And then for people that like listening to podcasts, I have a podcast called The Plant Free MD that my, you know, my interviews and, and, and videos that I put out on YouTube, I then obviously have in, in, in audio form for people that like to listen to that as well. So those are the main things. I have a couple other social media things, but they can all be found through those. And did you mention a Patreon earlier that people want to give you money to help hear you more? Yeah, I do have a Patreon. And again, it's just Anthony Chafee MD. And uh, that's kind of fun. We're sort of making our own community there. We have like a discord community group where everyone's able to chat and talk and support each other which is it's actually been really really helpful for people and it's 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 turned into a very nice community for people and i do a lot more live events there as well so i'll do sort of like two live events a week on on sundays for like tier two and above I'll have like a live Zoom meeting where we'll answer questions and talk, discuss topics. And then sometime during the week, I'll have a general one for, for everybody as well. Awesome. Well, if, if you like what you heard, please go support them. Go, you know, like them, share them. Let everyone you know hear them because it's this is information that needs to be spread far and wide. And if we can help financially support you too, please do that. Right? When you hear something you like, when there's someone who's speaking truth that you want to hear more of, throw a dollar their way, throw $5 their way a month, you know, that way they can continue to do this mission to get you the truth. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And yeah, it's, it's, you know, I don't, I, you know, I have a day job, you know, I, I don't do this for the money, but it, it really does take a lot of time and it, it is sort of helpful. And at least it, it's, it's a good feedback that people are, you know, you know, getting some use out right. of it. Well, thank you so much for coming on and, uh, you know, maybe, no maybe I can twist your arm and get you to come back on again. Cause there's so much we didn't talk about. <laughs> Yeah, happy to anytime, man. It was a pleasure. All right, thank you. Just a reminder for everyone out there, duty uniform of the day, the full armor of God. Let's all make courage more contagious than fear.